Coming up, TripAdvisor risks tripping and falling as it navigates the dangerous waters of user-generated content. Free stuff may be coming your way from Amazon. And how online activists are changing our society. It's Tuesday, the best day of the week. This is Steve Tushankel, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you this week by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. Music in the show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. So this is the portion of the podcast where I talk about whatever comes to mind. I do it every week. You probably don't know how I plan it out. But it's just whatever pops into my head. And maybe it has to do with technology because this is the New England Tech Podcast. It often does, usually does, if not always, but it doesn't necessarily have to. But I have to think a little bit in advance about what I'm going to talk about. I do it every week. Sit down, think about what's this going to be. I'm not going to plan it out too much like we do the news segment and the feature segment. But... It's got to be something that I've planned out beforehand. So I was in my car driving around listening to Sirius XM satellite radio, thinking about what am I going to talk about during the freeform segment of the podcast this week. And I thought, you know, Sirius XM satellite radio is a great thing to talk about because it is a technical innovation in the world of radio that really blew me away when it first came out. And it was out for many years before I actually got it. I didn't have a car. There was really no need for it. If you don't have a car, I don't necessarily recommend it. But if you have a car, it's a great thing to have. And it's sort of a non-traditional example of the way technology has changed many mass media, from television to news to radio. Now, SiriusXM emerged via the merger of Sirius Satellite Radio and XM Satellite Radio. They were competitors, and probably around maybe 10 years ago now, it's been a while, they joined up. They decided that there was not enough room in the market for two separate satellite radio providers. So now they're one unit, but when XM and Sirius both first emerged, it was transformational. It was kind of like the evolution from broadcast TV to cable TV. I still think of satellite radio as kind of the cable TV of radio. We're not anymore were you limited to, if you were in a smaller market, maybe only a few stations, and a larger market even, not that many stations. Suddenly, you had this gigantic landscape of very specific stations. Now, I remember many years ago, probably when I was a teenager, somebody created a Led Zeppelin-only radio station. I remember this very well. It was in the news. Nobody had ever done anything like that. And there was a lot of skepticism about who would want to listen to just Led Zeppelin every day. And the Led Zeppelin station quickly failed. But SiriusXM has tons of Led Zeppelin stations. There's a Beatles station. There's a Jimmy Buffett station. There are all sorts of stations 
for people with these very specific interests, which I can only imagine are successful or else they would be eliminated in favor of other stations as SiriusXM has done many times. So just as the internet, for example, has allowed our interest to get more specific to the benefit and detriment of our larger society, so has satellite radio allowed our auditory interests to get significantly more specific. Now, the most popular SiriusXM channel is, they call them either channels or stations. I think they call them channels, but I often think of them as stations. Uh, the most popular one is uh, 80s on 8, which I've heard is kind of the gateway drug of SiriusXM. When people first subscribe, all they want to hear is this 80s music that they remember. It's fun. You can dance to it. But um, then they eventually move into other more specific stations, such as First Wave is a good one. It's kind of a subset of 80s on 8 with some added 70s where you've got some more obscure new wave songs, some punk, things like that. Anyway, it has transformed radio, but it's never been entirely widespread, like cable TV was widespread. Like at one point before people started cutting the cord, a good majority of people had cable TV. It's never been a huge percentage of the population, probably not even half, that have satellite radio in their cars. And we are now at a place where technology moves on. It keeps going. As much as I love satellite radio, it's now being supplanted by other forms of, you might call them radio, you might call them just music on demand, whatever. You know, a lot of people I talk to prefer, instead of listening to satellite radio or any kind of radio at all, they prefer to plug their phone into their car or to use Bluetooth to broadcast Pandora over their speaker system or to broadcast Spotify over their speaker system. Uh, it's certainly, all the big tech players, Google, Amazon, they've got their own radio services that they're pushing. Some are to an extent free, some you have to pay extra for, but this is the next evolution past satellite radio. And SiriusXM should certainly be worried about that, and I'm sure they are worried about that. They have their own similar option where you can subscribe. For some reason, you have to pay extra. I never really got that. I think they should probably throw it in. But you have to pay extra for uh, internet radio, SiriusXM internet radio. And then you can listen to that anywhere. You can plug that into your car as well if you want. But that's where things are clearly going. Now, I personally prefer to listen to SiriusXM. I love the highly curated nature of it. I love the fact that it's personal. They've got great DJs traditionally an old-fashioned terrestrial radio. I didn't even like listening to DJs, but they hire the best DJs who tell you important information about the songs and give you some background, give it some color and some personality. So I like that. I don't want to lose that. And I think their curated stations or channels are very, very good, much more so than on the rare occasion that I'll listen to a Pandora station. When I listen to Pandora, even if it's a station that's targeted specifically toward me, I hear a lot of stuff I don't want. Sirius XM, not a lot of stuff I don't want. And if there is something that comes on that I don't want, it's very easy for me to change to another station in a way that's a little more awkward if you're listening to a Pandora or something like that. So technology moves on as we talk about all the time in the podcast it continues to evolve and i hope it does even though i'm a supporter and a big listener of sirius xm and i love it i hope that it's challenged 
And I hope that people start listening to other things and getting their music and, and other forms of auditory entertainment, such as talk, in other ways, because that can only mean good things in the end, whether SiriusXM comes up with innovations of its own to keep up, or whether just something comes along that's better and replaces it. It's all the same to me, because either way, we all benefit. And that, to me, is what technology is all about. So I just checked the clock, and I think it is now time to see what's in the news. First up this week, Amazon, according to reports, is working on a free streaming video service. Now, Amazon, of course, has a video service out right now. It's called Amazon Prime Video. I personally am an avid watcher of Amazon Prime Video. They've got some very good content and some great means of watching content, such as HBO, Showtime, Stars, Premium Networks, that is not their own by adding on to the subscription. It comes along with your Amazon Prime subscription, which is $99 a year. This is the same subscription that gets you free two-day shipping on uh, most of Amazon's items or a, a large number of Amazon's items. They also add a bunch of other things to that, including uh, access to their Prime video service. However, according to AdAge this week, People familiar with the situation say that Amazon is currently working with content providers to create a new service that offers video entirely for free. Now, this new service would be ad-supported. So you would not have to pay the $99 a year or anything at all to watch. You would be able to watch a select number of videos for free, and it's not known whether this means existing video content that they have or entirely new content. Now for their part, Amazon has denied this story and it is not the first time they've denied it. They have denied this many times as rumors have happened over the past year or two of Amazon working on a service like that. But if these rumors keep cropping up, there's probably a reason for it. So there are a lot of observers out there that don't believe Amazon's denials and think that this is something that's happening. They're just keeping it under wraps. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, a big reason is so they can upsell viewers to Amazon Prime Video, that $99 a year service that comes with everything else. Amazon is dedicated to Prime. They want people to use Prime very, very badly because when you buy to Amazon Prime, you pay Amazon a lot more money than non-Prime subscribers do. So they're throwing everything against the wall from video to music to audiobooks, you name it. They're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks because they want you. They want you to sign up for Prime. They want those valuable subscriptions. So you would imagine that Amazon would even be comfortable losing money on this ad-supported video service. This could be a loss leader for them because it's just a way to funnel customers into the real Prime subscription. But is free video sustainable as a model in and of itself? Well, there are other free streaming video services out there. Crackle is a big one that comes to mind, but they haven't really become particularly large. They haven't really been able to offer a hugely compelling volume of content. And I would venture to say 
that almost no shows that have ever been offered on a service like that have ever broken out into the pop cultural zeitgeist, into into our larger media diet. Crackle actually hosted Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee for a while, which became a big thing. Uh, however, that's moving to Netflix now. They actually couldn't sustain it once it became too popular. Netflix managed to outbid them for the show. And that's really the only example I can think of of a show that really gained much traction at all on a free service. So will this work out for Amazon? Well, as I always say on the podcast, I said it just last week and I'll probably say it in every future week, do not count Amazon out ever for any reason whatsoever. Next up, TripAdvisor has announced that they will start marking businesses where violent incidents had been reported. Now, TripAdvisor, of course, is located in Needham, Massachusetts. They are local. If you drive up I-95, you can see their gleaming new headquarters, which has only been built in the past couple of years. So it is certainly one of the major Boston area tech companies, very important to the tech scene, the digital scene in Massachusetts and in New England at large. But TripAdvisor has also been the subject of some criticism lately. Last month, they removed a review of a Mexican resort by a woman who said that she was raped by a security guard at this resort. Now, this led to a major outcry and Amazon, or sorry, TripAdvisor, I've got Amazon on the mind as always, but TripAdvisor ended up restoring the review. They claim that this review was inadvertently removed from their system due to a policy that they have on offensive language, which would have been used in the, uh, the review, but they brought it back after the outcry. Now, what they've announced is to make people more satisfied with their policy and more informed of potential threats relating to businesses that are listed on TripAdvisor, they are now going to badge businesses where incidents have been reported. Badging, by the way, is kind of an industry term, meaning putting a, a certain label on, uh, on a piece of content or something like that. So they're going to badge these businesses where people have reported dangerous incidents to warn people that they may, in fact, be in danger. Here's what the, the uh, warning will say. It says, TripAdvisor has been made aware of recent media reports or events concerning this property, which may not be reflected in reviews found on this listing. That gives them leeway to remove the uh, the listing or the, the review and still have plausible deniability. I continue, accordingly, you may wish to perform additional research for information about this property when making your travel plans. It's an interesting piece of verbiage, isn't it? Because what additional research are you supposed to perform? Generally, the additional research that people perform is to go to a service like TripAdvisor. Uh, however, TripAdvisor is telling you, we're not responsible for this. Something may have happened, but we want you to be aware of it regardless and do your own research. Take care of it yourself. Call the police. I don't know what they're even really suggesting there. TripAdvisor, not surprisingly, is still facing criticism over how it handles reviews. Now, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin has called on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate TripAdvisor, saying that they, quote, may be prioritizing profits over providing an open 
honest forum for traveler reviews, right? The idea is they don't want to alienate these potential clients. That's where they make their money from businesses. They don't want to alienate anyone by putting them under the threat of losing business because people have negative things to say about them. And of course, people do have negative things to say, but there's a big difference between a review about the service and a review about being assaulted by a security guard. So TripAdvisor has a thin tightrope to walk here. And by the way, those badges that they're putting on the businesses, they've only put three on so far, one of which is that Mexican resort. So we'll see how much this expands and if there are enough reports to make this a big thing that you notice because one would imagine that these incidents happen in a significant amount of places. Now, one thing I've noticed that nobody seems to be saying here, and I, speaking of walking a, you know, a thin tightrope, I want to be very careful about what I say here because there may be a reason nobody is saying this. It may be a little dangerous to say this. But there is a possibility that people would leave reviews on sites uh, about things that did not necessarily happen, about incidents that didn't necessarily happen. Now, the reason that this is such a dangerous topic is because, for example, this woman uh, accused the security guard at this Mexican resort of rape. There is a long history in America of rape accusations in particular not being taken seriously and women not being taken seriously when they accuse someone of of really any sort of crime of that nature, sexual harassment, sexual assault, you name it. So I don't want to sit here and suggest that people will come in en masse and be making false rape accusations against businesses. However, I do think that this is a somewhat different matter than the thorny matter of, uh, you know, this generally misogynistic accusation of women making false accusations against men, which tend to be, by and large, in huge, huge numbers, legitimate. There have been cases where they haven't been legitimate, but it's very, very rare. In this case, I fear it might be less rare because you can be anonymous on TripAdvisor. There's nothing to lose. It's very, very easy to say mean and nasty things about a business that you don't like. It's very easy to want to hurt that business and not really have any stakes at hand for anybody. Uh, there's, I'm sure, tons and tons of TripAdvisor reviews and Yelp reviews out there that say things that didn't actually happen. Maybe I've written some of them myself. Just kidding, I've never written one of those. Everything in my TripAdvisor and Yelp reviews has actually happened, positive or negative. However, I have no doubt whatsoever that people respond uh, in ways that don't necessarily reflect reality because they're mad for some reason. Maybe because they wanted a deal that they didn't get. You name it. And Yelp actually allows business owners to respond to reviews. So if someone leaves a negative review, uh, a business owner can respond, and if they're smart, they can say, sorry, this happened, uh, what can we do to rectify it? And if they're stupid, they can argue with you, as a lot of business owners do. But nonetheless, that's why they give business owners the ability to respond. So the question is, can this new system that TripAdvisor is applying be abused? Is it going too far, or is it not going too far enough? 
that is something that TripAdvisor is going to have to address in the coming days and weeks and months. I have no doubt that they will attempt to address it. Will they do it to everyone's satisfaction? Well, spoiler alert, no. You can't do anything to anyone's satisfaction. But this is the time, once again, to use the same expression, once again, the thin tightrope that anyone dealing in user-generated content is going to have to walk. Once upon a time, activism was difficult. If you had a cause that you wanted to support en masse, if you wanted to get people involved and engaged, it was tough. It was tough to get something together. Now, activism has been very, very successful over the years in many areas. Activists have had huge, huge successes over the entire history of the American democracy, but particularly in the past 100 years or so. You can go back to women's suffrage. The reason women got the right to vote was because of coordinated protests and actions on the behalf of a number of very brave and proactive women. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement is another example of, of that. Martin Luther King has his own national holiday simply because of his success in organizing people to fight for racial equality. Uh, you can take the Vietnam anti-war movement as well, where we were fighting this war and there were a lot of people out there who thought it was pointless and we were just sending people off to die for no reason. And the tide turned. The tide turned in terms of the popular imagination because of, in part at least, these protests. So these are all examples of successful activism prior to the digital age prior to the internet age, right? But back then, activists, despite their successes, did not have anywhere near the resources that activists do now due to those advances in technology. Take the civil rights movement, right? We've heard so much about it. You've seen videos of the March on Washington. If you're of a certain age, maybe you saw it on TV or were there yourself, but you've seen videos of it certainly of all these people in the National Mall. But that was so difficult to do and you could do it so seldom. Ultimately, the people who were out there marching for civil rights was a small number of people and they generally came from similar walks of life. It wasn't necessarily people from all over the place. You know, College students, for example, were very active in that. Um, but... Today, while a relatively small number of people may still be coaxed to come out and protest for a cause in person, anyone can be an activist on the internet, and virtually anybody is. You've probably done it yourself. If you've ever shared a meme or promoted a political cause on Facebook or Twitter, then you have participated in online activism. You have supported a cause in a way that you not only couldn't have done decades ago, 
but probably wouldn't have in any way because it wasn't that easy. Now, how do you actually organize online for a cause? There are formal platforms out there that enable this. There are groups on the left, there are groups on the right, there are groups anywhere in between that regularly organize campaigns that are intended to be shared across a wide spectrum. Social media is huge there, but you can set up a website that enables sharing something on social media. You can create viral videos that that reach deeply into the, into the popular uh, imagination that, that everyone sees. You can create websites that make it easier to send messages to Congress. You can set up online petitions, for example, you name it. Change.org is a particularly interesting platform. Uh, if you've never seen it, they allow anyone to create a petition, and many of those petitions get signatures into the hundreds of thousands. And when they get that many signatures, the people being targeted uh, by those petitions kind of have to pay attention. And that's something that you couldn't do before this platform existed. You would have to stand out in front of a supermarket collecting signatures. You couldn't collect that many. Uh, you could do it nationwide, but remember that requires a lot more coordination than just going to change.org and setting up a petition would take. So this is a great way of getting the attention of people in power. They, they can't ignore that, and you can't ignore that this is uh, a way of raising awareness that's changing things. Now, this sort of online activism has gone back all the way to the mid-90s. I remember, I have a vivid memory of having a, my own personal website in the mid-90s, and I turned it black in protest of the Communications Decency Act, which was a kind of scary law uh, at the time that uh, that actually passed. It's been watered down significantly since then, but it was supposed to basically uh, prevent obscenity on the internet. And what is obscenity? Well, that, that's where the, the question is, right? That's where this becomes an important matter. Uh, so I was very concerned with that. I turned my website black, and uh, though it still passed, a lot of people did become aware of the risks, and it may have had something to do with uh, the law becoming watered down in the following years. Now, more recently than that, there have been organized campaigns that have led to major sites slowing themselves down intentionally in support of net neutrality to, to let you see what might happen if net neutrality rules are changed and suddenly there can be a fast lane on the internet and by extension there can be a slow lane and your favorite site may end up in the slow lane. So your internet experience will be degraded as a result of these changes in net neutrality rules. So there have been very successful campaigns in that regard lately and a lot more people who didn't know before now do know because of these campaigns and can possibly even affect some change. But what I, find, what I find equally interesting to these coordinated campaigns is some of the less orthodox methodology that people use to get their message out there. For example, we've talked about Reddit before on the podcast. Reddit is, I think, the seventh or eighth most popular website in the world. It is huge and influential, and it is responsible for both good things and bad things. You may have noticed that there has been an increase in hate and bigotry and misogyny that's visible in our culture lately. Maybe it was always there, but it's now more visible to a general audience. And sad to say, because I'm a frequent Reddit user, Reddit may be a cause of some of that, not Reddit itself, 
but the people who gather on Reddit to get their message out and to discuss ways of getting their message out, to strategize, right? So the reason I mention that is because Reddit has become a platform that has been used to great effect and abused, some might say, by the alt-right. A couple campaigns come to mind there. Amy Schumer is a comedian who was not liked by the extreme right wing, and they started a campaign online to downvote her, to use a Reddit term actually, but to to give one-star reviews to her latest special on Netflix. So everyone who saw her special saw that it had one star. Now, most of the people who gave it one star had never even seen the special. They just knew that their marching orders were to go to Netflix and give it one star. And it kind of worked. It kind of worked because I would read online discussions about this and there were a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, I don't support these sorts of campaigns, but it wasn't good, right? And that's kind of this this herd mentality, right? Even if you don't necessarily support that cause, you see the one star and it's hard to get past. You want to think maybe it's legitimate and not just the result of the this coordinated campaign. So your opinion of the content itself changes. More recently, an excellent Netflix show, which I just finished watching, called Big Mouth, it's an animated uh, show about puberty, was the target of a coordinated, a coordinated campaign by these same forces to get it branded as child pornography. So if you actually go to a YouTube video promoting the show Big Mouth, you will notice that it's got way more thumbs down on it than thumbs up, even though by all accounts the show is a hit and got great reviews. These videos get tons of thumbs down. And the comments are like you know 80% about how, how is this allowed? Isn't this child pornography? And it's, it's an amazing thing to behold because it really goes to show the power that a relatively small number of people can have. Now, the Big Mouth campaign was nowhere near as successful as the Amy Schumer campaign. By all accounts, as I said, the show is a hit. It was quickly renewed for season two. It got great reviews. People seemed to really love it. Didn't quite work in that case, maybe because the theme of the campaign was a little sillier and less easy to believe than just this special isn't good. Give it one star, right? This cartoon is child pornography is a little tougher to get to from there. But nonetheless, you see these campaigns happening more and more and they're going to continue. Now, these sorts of campaigns can be used for both bad and good. One thing that I become a little fascinated with lately because of this dynamic is this incel movement. I don't know if you've heard of incels, but incels stands for involuntary celibates. And it's a group of uh, young men, generally in their late teens, um, perhaps early 20s, who aren't able to form romantic relationships, as is true of many people in their late teens and early 20s. But what sets these self-identified incels apart is who they blame for it. They're not trying to make things better for themselves. They blame women in general, and they blame a society that gives women equal rights in general. And they go on their sites, in particular Reddit, and they actively campaign to roll back the rights of women. Now, you may think that this is a small group that doesn't have an influence, but they do have an influence because more people come in, more people see it, and more people adopt uh, even if they don't have the problems that these people have, they 
they can still adopt the philosophy. They can still accept that philosophy. And these these communities were getting more and more popular. Now, another group of Reddit users banded together and created their own subreddit, as a, a, a group discussion on Reddit is called. And they, uh, they dedicated themselves to calling out examples of very scary things that the incels group was saying. Um, and they were saying a lot of scary things, a lot of threats of violence, things like that. And what did this accomplish? Well, ultimately, it got the original incels group shut down. So they had an impact. Uh, they managed to organize in a somewhat non-traditional way, and they managed to have a very real impact. And while the incels may move somewhere else, in fact, they already have, they're not going to move anywhere else that has the authority of Reddit, the seventh or eighth most popular website on the internet, where people are just going to surf in and and see this noxious philosophy and um, and possibly be impacted in a negative way with it. And then maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever, this philosophy could become gospel, could become widespread. We've certainly seen these things happen in the recent past with our current political direction. So we can see that online activism can go in a number of different directions. But I think what these examples show is that it's very important for people who are interested in doing good works to get with the program now and become activists themselves online. It's, it's so easy now. It's never been easier to do it. So if you have a good cause, you really, in a sense, have a responsibility of to get out there and promote that cause because if you don't use this powerful platform to do it, you can bet that someone else will. something. Do you have a side hustle? Are you familiar with the term side hustle? Suddenly it's everywhere. I'd never heard it a year ago, certainly not two years ago, but now it's everywhere and tons of people do it. It's just a little thing that you do on the side to make additional money and people do all sorts of different things. There are people out there who drive for Uber or Lyft and use their car to make some additional money in time that they would none otherwise be spending doing something else. Other people who have some visual talents do graphic design on the side via a service like Fiverr, where you can go on and see a bunch of people who are willing to do little cheap creative jobs for you, and you can pay them relatively small amounts of money to do those jobs. So these are very different things, right? Driving an Uber versus doing graphic design versus anything else that you may be doing on the side uh, to make an extra chunk of change, which so many people need these days. But no matter what you either do today or may be considering doing in the future, no matter what it is, all of them in general have one thing in common, and that is technology. You don't actually have to be involved in creating technology, but all of these expressions of the gig economy, as it is known, are enabled by technology, right? Uber is a digitally native platform. That's what people love about it. Fiverr, nobody is going to find you to do your work 
without the internet, without a website or an app. So technology enables all of it. And our economy is really being transformed in a way that you might not expect. There's been a lot of attention about the gig economy, but not so much attention on technology's role in enabling it. And we will be talking a lot more about that on next week's show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be here next Tuesday as we are every Tuesday or sometimes Wednesday with more news and more commentary. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I know I did. I always do. My name's Steve Tashanko. Courage. We-